0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talks are offered by the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies. Please visit our website www.sati.org for more information on our courses.
1: So I'm going to welcome everyone to this uh, day long on the theme of socially engaged Buddhism, different aspects of it. And it's a pleasure to see a lot of familiar faces and uh, also uh, meeting people, uh, some for the first time. So my name is Donald Rothberg. I'll introduce myself um, in a little while more, more fully um, because my experience that often on weekend mornings when we start at this time, there it may be a very different culture here at IMC, but often uh, there's a significant difference between the number of people here at the start time and those here 20 minutes later. <laughs> That's my experience. And so what I like to do Uh, in recognition of that fact, is to uh, just do a very brief welcome right now and then start with a sitting. Start with about 20 minutes of uh, practice. Um, Whatever form of practice you do, for most of us here, that would be mindfulness practice. So is there anyone who actually needs some very beginning or basic instructions in mindfulness Okay, so people are, are more uh, experienced. Or, okay, I know many of you are very experienced. <laughs> okay, so we'll sit for about 20 minutes, and at the end of that time, I'll give a guided reflection that'll start us into the day. As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to invite a brief reflection. I'd like to invite you to bring to mind the intention or intentions with which you come today. What are your Core interests or hopes for the day. What's your, if you had to say in one sentence, what would your, what would your intention be for this day long? Could just be to learn, to deepen, and so forth. But just to ask yourself what that core intention is for about a minute or so. So welcome. Again, good to uh, see a number of familiar faces and to be meeting new people for this day-long entitled uh, "Socially Engaged Buddhism: Tradition, Innovation, and Contemporary Challenges." And my name is uh, Donald Rothberg, and it's great to be uh, back at IMC again. I want to uh, welcome people from the IMC community. There also, I know people from other communities who have come, and I wanted to first say a little bit about uh, myself, a little bit about the uh, the day, the uh, intended structure of the day, and then hear a little bit from you, and then we'll get, get going in terms of the actual content of the day long. And there are um, handouts that, uh, if you didn't get them, you can get them um, a little later, uh, we made um, thirty handouts, and there are exactly thirty people. whoops <laughs> someone new. <laughs> okay. so a uh, little bit about my background uh, I'm as many of you know i'm I'm um, part of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock and in that capacity teach. Uh, Retreats, loving kindness, mindfulness retreats. Um, I'll actually be part of the team for the two-month retreat for next February and March. So I love that uh, deep investigation of retreats and silence, but also have had um, a strong interest in seeing how to make this practice real and alive in this culture with the kind of lives that most people have. And so I've had a, also um, a strong interest in the connection of uh, practice and uh, Western psychology, currently working on a book on transforming the judgmental mind, which is a big topic, important topic, and uh, have a background in the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy, it's quite interesting, but have also uh, had a long time interest and involvement with uh, engaged Buddhism or what we call socially engaged Buddhism uh, for a long time. Really, my um, my initial sort of learning as a teenager and in later years was was having my eyes opened by the movements of the 60s and 70s when I was uh, coming of age, uh, teenager and then going to, uh, going to college and, and, and later, that was very drawn to social justice movements. And that was really much of the background from my family. You know, they were very socially involved, uh, you know, went to the March on Washington where Dr. King spoke, you know, the I Have a Dream speech and so forth. And my mother was actually uh, the director of um, what was then called race relations for the public school system in Richmond, Virginia during the time of court-ordered desegregation. And she was the ombudsperson for uh, what we would now call diversity work for about 10 years, for the whole city of Richmond uh, public school system. So I was quite involved with those issues, and that was sort of the milieu that I, I grew up in. And it was um, natural. Uh, it was some years later, you know, in my uh, early 20s, I started getting involved with uh, Buddhist meditation, and really I've been um, um, fell in love with it and have been practicing ever since. So it was very natural to try to bring those two areas together. And so um, for a long time I was doing that uh, um, somewhat on my own, but um, when I moved to Northern California about a little over 20 years ago, uh, I found a critical mass of people here who were really interested in that. Got involved with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, was on the board for the better part of 10 years, was involved with the setting up workshops and trainings, uh, became involved with the the BASE program, stands for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, founded in um, 1995 by Diana Winston, who's a dear friend and colleague at Spirit Rock, uh, now in Los Angeles, um, uh, director of education at the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA, bringing, you know, um, bringing mindfulness into a lot of more secular contexts, sort of one version of engaged Buddhism. And so I was involved with that program, the base program, which we've done about 36 month training programs, mostly small groups, eight to 12 people, uh, meeting typically for six months at a time with a weekend retreat to beginning and end and different structures. But the typical structure would be a a weekly meeting on an evening, and then a monthly day long, and everyone in the program would be engaged in the world in some way, through work, through volunteer work, through different sorts of things. So I've been involved with, with that program quite a bit. Also involved with the International Network of Engaged Buddhists uh, uh, meeting in, in um, Asia, mostly Thailand, uh, you know and meeting people really from all over the world but especially from Thailand Burma Japan Nepal uh, Philippines some um, and, and but also people from Australia Europe North America so developing kind of a worldwide network of people uh, very interested in engaged wisdom Sri Lanka of course a lot of people from there and uh, my own, particular interest probably has been in two main areas in relation to engaged Buddhism. One of them has been writing, and I've written both in a scholarly way uh, on socially engaged Buddhism and also in a a more practical way. And some of you know I have a a book that came out about a little uh, over four years ago um, called The Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves and the World. I think that's the title. (laughs) And, and uh, which is really kind of a, a crystallization or a distillation of, the, of about 15 years of work. And it's really a practice manual. So my work probably the last 10 years has been more practical. It's been developing training programs especially with the base program. Uh, I, at an at academic level, developed an interfaith program for Saybrook Graduate School called Socially Engaged Spirituality, which looked at expressions of socially engaged spirituality across traditions from the Jewish prophets to Jesus, to liberation theology, to Martin Luther King, to Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Dorothy Day, Aung San Suu Kyi, indigenous traditions, and so forth. Really quite wonderful program. And um, have uh, most lately uh, developed a program at Spirit Rock called The Path of Engagement, those of us who were working on the program, when we would when telephone each other, we'd sometimes answer and, you know, make a lot of jokes. We would say, hello, passive derangement. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, we'll, we'll bring in that theme. Humor is very important for socially engaged Buddhists and sort of, I think, for anyone who's, actually any human being, but especially those who are um, sometimes looking at hard realities or difficult realities. That's, Humor is very, uh, very helpful. So um, the path of engagement, uh, most lately, uh, a two-year training program. We had about 50 people in the program uh, from all over North America. And the structure was that of five seven-day retreats at Spirit Rock, uh, which were mostly uh, training retreats. We, we thought of them as training, bringing together silent practice with training in various aspects of socially engaged Buddhism. And then uh, everyone in the program had a mentor, kind of gathered about 15 people from the socially engaged Buddhist world, mostly in, mostly in the Bay Area, but really all over the country. And everyone had a mentor and would check in with that mentor once a month you know, typically for a half hour or an hour to check in about the practice and how it was going and the integration of inner and outer work. We had monthly uh, meetings, some of them were on the telephone, uh, with, typically with, uh, facilitated by a mentor. And then we also had monthly study and practice materials, which uh, I was the main author of those and hoped to make that into a book, which was, you know, we developed on about 20 different themes you know practices, reading lists, and so forth on all sorts of um, themes related to engaged practice. So, uh, what I'm offering today is a kind of um, focused look that will bring in some of that material. But today it's a little more oriented towards the study components, and uh, especially in the morning. And so I've I've organized today into four blocks, really answering four main questions related to socially engaged Buddhism. And uh, the structure for each of the, each of the blocks will be about an hour, hour and a quarter or so. And in a, in a moment, I'll get to the first block. And the, 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 the first block is on really answering the question or asking and answering the question, what is socially engaged Buddhism? And talking a little bit more about the background of that, followed by discussion, then that would be followed by a period of walking meditation. That would also be the time to use the restrooms, come back for some sitting meditation. And then the uh, second block is on the question of the relationship of socially engaged Buddhism to traditional Buddhism. Is it inno- To what extent is it innovative, just a uh, con- con- uh, continuation of traditional Buddhism, and, and different questions there. And again, about probably give about a half-hour talk followed by some discussion, and um, and that would take us about up to lunch, which is at 12:30. About an hour lunch, come back about 1:30. We'll do some movement, short meditation, and the third theme is uh, in the afternoon. We'll get more into the practical questions. Uh, what does a socially engaged Buddhist uh, practice path look like really what does it what 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 does it mean to take this as one's path of practice to be involved let's say in the world in some capacity service, social change work, um, helping others in some way whatever it might be how does that begin to look like a path of practice uh, that has its own principles, Practices supports that it's not simply that we're on the cushion and then all right go out into the world do your best but actually a little more how does it how is it more structured as a path and then the the last uh, part uh, of the afternoon will again have a similar structure of thirty minutes something like a half hour talk discussion and uh, some walking meditation uh, sitting meditation. Then the last section is on some core issues in socially engaged Buddhism and also be a time to see what, uh, you know, what partic- where we want to go further as a group today. And my thought is that the, the morning will be a little bit more on the scholarly background of socially engaged Buddhism. The afternoon will be more practical. And I'll also, in the uh, meditations, be bringing in some guided meditations to give you some of the flavor of some of what we've done in these training programs, you know, because we've really developed a number of meditative ways of working with engaged Buddhism. So more or less uh, one block, walking meditation, one block, lunch, one block, walking meditation, one block, and end of the day, dinner, movie, whatever. <laughs> whatever 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 comes next so that's my that's my intention for um, for the day and um, wanted to hear just a little bit from from you and I'm uh, yeah I'm wondering how many of you uh, have let's say significant background in socially engaged Buddhism how many of you are fairly new to socially engaged Buddhism and are here more to be informed about it? So that's, that's uh, 80 or 90% of the people. So that's helpful. How many of you have uh, a fairly well-established meditation practice? So that's, and how many of you are relatively new to meditation? Okay. So, good. So I can, can I presume basic background in mindfulness? And how many of you are relatively familiar with mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths, Basic Buddhist Teachings? Okay, so that's, that's good to know. And at any time, I think, you know, I'll, I'll be giving talks, but if you have a question of clarification, feel free just to uh, jump in and ask it. But well, we can reserve, like, more substantive questions for the, for the discussion time. And I'm thinking also that... Um, Probably in the morning, the discussion will be more large group discussions or more questions and so forth. But the afternoon, I'm thinking of of having um, I've given a little more time for the discussion, and we'll probably have uh, small group work. I've given enough time to do both small group and large group work in the afternoons, and that'll be more practical uh, in in nature the 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 inquiries. So um, I'd be very interested in just hearing, maybe a few people if you could just t- say in a sentence or two what what brings you here and' then should we use the handheld mic
2: I'm just gonna I'm just gonna interject um, before we get going oh, some logistics yeah logistical yeah, kinds of you. things um, for those of you who are new to this building and IMC there are three bathrooms Towards the back of the room here, across from the kitchen, there are two and one behind that uh, large cabinet at the end of the room. There's hot water for tea, um, and the tea can be found in the drawers. There are paper cups as well as if you want a ceramic cup and you want to label it, you can do that. We ask that you don't bring tea into this room. You can bring water, but no tea, just so that it keeps the carpet from... Stains. Um, If any of you have parked in the lot across from here, which is the dentist parking lot, um, we would like for you to move your car because they would prefer that lot be open for their patients. And also, if you're parked on the street, just be mindful of not blocking any driveways. We like to be good neighbors in the neighborhood. Um, And also, this is a Sati Center event, so even though we're here in IMC, um, Sati Center uses this space to provide um, classes and courses. Um, And I also wanted to mention, this is fairly new, but um, Sati Center is happy to announce that we're going to, um, uh, beginning in September, offer two courses that will uh, count towards a Master of Buddhist Studies, uh, one of which is a um, course on readings in early Buddhist texts and also another course which will be meditation in the Theravada tradition. So those are new offerings this fall. Also, uh, Labor Day weekend, John Peacock will be here to present some classes both on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And um, in October, I believe we're having uh, Venerable Analayo, who will be really? here for... What is that? um I don't remember the exact yeah. date. I think it's October 18th, and it'll be in the afternoon and the evening. It's kind of an odd day. It's a weekday, but that's the only time that we were able to have him come. Good. So... And thanks, thanks,
1: Laurie, for all your support so very, very and, and also,
2: if you're going to do any kind of Donna there um, there's just the one slot um, that's for sati Center, and then Donald gets paid out of the sati Center donations is the way it works. so thank you very much
1: can there and can people, if they wish give donations to the center itself, but that's optional or?
2: Uh, I think it just all goes to Sati and then what okay. What Sati does is uh we give a donation to IMC okay, great. as well. So there's so. we'll say, say more
1: of that about that right before lunch. Say a little bit more. Okay. So um love to hear if you could say in a sentence or two what brings you here. I'd like to hear from a few people. Um you know, sounds like for many people it's just to be more informed about socially engaged Buddhism in general. But are there any, anyone else like to um, just add your, your intention to the mix or also to inform me as to what, what brings you here? Maybe just a few people, anyone like to, see? please, uh, Sean? Sean?
2: Um, I'm. Is this on? I'm here to uh, learn how to hold the world
1: with my heart mm-hmm. and not get my heart squished on. Yeah. Yeah. How to keep that heart relatively happy, healthy, while going into the world fully. Yeah.
3: Hello. Hi. Thank you for being here today for us. Um, I'm a relatively new practitioner as far as consistent practice, uh, just under a year. But I realized um, a few years ago I made a decision to, uh, instead of wringing my hands about the state of the planet, um, to actually see what I could do and do it. And then as I became more interested in Buddhist teachings, began reading and practicing, I realized that um, it was one and the same thing. And I think that, to, for myself, I discovered that to study Buddhist teachings, mm-hmm. it was, um, uh, I think, as you mentioned, very natural. It's a very natural extension to be engaged in the world, uh, to care for living mm. things, etc. Yeah. So I'm, I'm here to deepen my practice. To today.
1: deepen. And your name? Patricia. Patricia, thank you.
3: Hi, um, I'm Hannah. And I think something I'd definitely like to work on here or learn about is um, how to keep my heart open to everyone who is suffering, including those who we typically demonize and mm-hmm. say they're the people who are, you know, causing all the suffering in the world and realizing that they too are suffering and in need of people opening up their hearts and their support to them as well.
1: Yeah, thank you, Hannah. Maybe two more right here. And you know.
3: My name is Evan and I am here to have more clarity about how to practice practice in my daily life and how my intentions in my work and in my practice can be how i can feel good about them being on the same path and together
1: mhm yeah, thank you how many how many can relate to that question and how many could relate much to um, Sean's question, how to hold the world and kind of keep one's heart balanced. How many can relate to that? And then um, Patricia's intention really to to deepen the sense of how the, as it were, the more inner practice has a natural extension into care and being in the world. How many can connect with that? And then... Um, um, Hannah's sense of um, opening, really uh, keeping the heart open in the presence of suffering, particularly with those who, let's say, in the society are demonized or made into opponents. Yeah. Okay. So maybe last one.
0: Um, good morning. My name is Nancy, hmm. and um, I'm here to see how... Um, it's all going to work together or at least get some direction about that. I'm um, fortunate enough that I do have a venue and a practice in terms of um, uh, medical intervention um, with people. And then also I'm an academic,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I do research, and, um, and then I'm a newly uh, – founding board member of Insight World Aid, which is here at IMC, and we are in the process of finding our direction. And so I'm um, feeling the need to be very active in terms of publishing and policy, uh, affecting policy and affecting my students, and then also having uh, the – practice of humanitarian aid yeah so how that's all going to shape up
1: how, how those those connect and you yeah. yeah, very and much
0: how they can um, foster each other feed each other um, and sometimes it just feels like how will this really come together
1: yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you so. Really, I mean, if, we, if I would generalize I would, you know, and ask about um, how that connects with others, it would be really one way to say it is how one's practice really connects with the different parts of one's life in a sense of acting effectively in the world. You know? so How many have an interest in that? Yeah. Good, so we'll, we'll let those, those statements of intentions really uh, be representative of our group, um, and my own my own experience is that actually socially engaged Buddhism is something relatively new, and quite creative, and it really invites the interest and creativity of all of us. I you know I, I found myself in doing the work with these training programs and doing writing that it's um, it really opens up into what I think in many ways is, new, is a is a new territory. And I'll, I'll probably talk more about that in the second segment that, you know, in a kind of clear analytical way can really point to how there's great creativity demanded, you know, to give more of a, to give more form to what we call socially engaged Buddhism. In other words, it's not just saying practice a lot and, and go out in the world and be compassionate, right? That that's good, but but how do we actually support that with with more specific understandings? You know, and that's been a, an interest of mine. I've particularly focused, uh, you know, you know, on these kind of trainings, maybe on on areas, particularly like speech practice, working with conflict, um, connecting psychology and meditation, and so forth. So. We'll come back to that question, but it's this, this, this very broad area. So first, I think I'll first get, now give a, um, a short talk on, just uh, further uh, on answering the question, what is socially engaged Buddhism? What is this phenomenon that we're talking about? Um, so maybe first um, a few vignettes of situations involving, involving socially engaged Buddhism. So the first is from Vietnam in the, uh, let's say, 1964, 65, 66. And this is um, maybe in, in both in rural and urban parts of Vietnam. It's at the height of the uh, conflict in Vietnam. And on weekends, it's very typical that people uh, gather Um, at the temples, which are there for most, you know, for the villages and and also in in the cities. People would gather and do more traditional uh, practices. There might be weddings or funerals and so forth, and there would be gathering. And then often, and this is according to what I've learned from a friend named Thichman Duk. Uh, who who lives actually not far from here, but also spends a lot of time these days in Vietnam. Um, Also, um, maybe on the Sundays, a lot of the people, especially the younger people, would gather at the temple almost every Sunday and be talking about what they'll be doing in the demonstrations coming up. And they strategize, they get together, they uh, connect the planning with their practice, and then they might go the following weekend, or some demonstration further down the road, and that that is, and they they know each other, they have community, and they go out, and they that and this is a pattern for a number of years. A second vignette, uh, this time from Thailand. So now it's a little later; it's the 1990s in Thailand. There's been as many of you probably know, uh, much of the rainforest has been cut down. Uh, in 1950, uh, 20% of the rainforest had been cut down. By the 1990s, 80% is cut down. You know, f- to meet all sorts of needs, a lot of it international for, for you know for furniture to come to the U.S. for the Japanese market and so forth. Um, a lot of the uh, monks start becoming quite concerned about this. They're, they live in the forest, they're very attuned to what's happening and they don't know what to do. Some of them are involved in training, some of them are involved in environmental action and they, um, some of them decide that they'll do something rather radical they will start um, ordaining trees as monastics. And so they start doing that in places that are very vul- vulnerable to being cut. And one can see photos of trees with the uh, yellow robe. <laughs> you know? And um, the strategy is effective those cutting down the lumber or cut the lumber companies do not cut down ordained trees. It's a controversial <laughs> strategy. <laughs> Some of the uh, monks later get in trouble for that strategy, but uh, with the higher-ups, but in any case, it's an example of creative practice. But in any case, uh, in the 90s, there developed uh, networks, we might call networks of engaged monastics, Who are in contact with each other? Who are, um, you know, going to trainings or involved in, particularly, in environmental and other kinds of action? Um, One person who I got to know, who I've got to know pretty well, named uh, who's abbot of a monastery in uh, northeast Thailand, where a good number of the monasteries are, uh, named Pra San. He does uh, six months. His, his pattern of living is six months with the monastery as the abbot, including the rains retreat, you know, the longer retreat. And then he does six months of training out in the world, giving trainings and participating in actions. That's his lifestyle. And there grow to be more and more people who who take that combined lifestyle, that combination of inner and outer work. Another set of vignettes, just to give a sense of it. Uh, people in the training program, Path of Engagement that I was involved with, many of them, uh, I think a good chunk of the people that we were with work in the medical area, you know, as nurses, as uh, doctors. And uh, they, like others, doing other kinds of work in the helping professions, as educators, as psychologists, they are very much interested in how this integration of inner and outer practice can be supported. And they um, spend the two years in the program really focusing on that, how to bring that into the area. Or I think of the many different kinds of experiences with the BASE program, people working in all sorts of uh, endeavors uh, involved with um, work at the policy level, work directly, let's say, with the homeless, working in prisons. uh, uh, As teachers, we had a program called Educators' Base. We had a program, one of our base programs was working with the homeless, and it was called Home Base. So the base program had a lot of potential um, puns possible. But we we never hit a home pun. So okay. <laughs> that, that that was that was fresh. That wasn't an old one. I just that just came to <laughs> came to mind as I was speaking. Um, so those are vignettes. Another another vignette um, from Sri Lanka. It's the uh, it's um, short time. This is two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three. There's been a ceasefire in the civil war in Sri Lanka that's claimed tens of thousands of lives. The engaged Buddhist organization Sarvodaya uh, with its director, Dr. A.T. Aryaratni, who has come many times to the U.S. and has worked with Buddhist Peace Fellowship a lot, has worked with a lot of the programs I've been involved with. Um, They start experimenting with large meditations to support the peace process. And they were very instrumental in ending the civil war and also you know vast organization of um, some 15,000 chapters across the villages of Sri Lanka. 15,000 chapters of this organization. So probably the largest example of engaged Buddhism historically in Sri Lanka. And also probably after the tsunami in 2004, did more than the government to support those affected by the tsunami, from, from, from my understanding. Um, and so they start developing large meditations to support the process. Uh, they find this to be an effective way to galvanizing energy. They start getting very large 100,000, 200,000 at one point. I believe it's 2002, just a short time after the ceasefire. They call people for their, this is I think the first large group meditation after the ceasefire. There are 650,000 people who come to this event and are and are all uh, dressed in white and committed to support the peace process and there's this large meditation. So another that's another vignette uh, maybe a last vignette that I, that I know also from my own experience theres a um, uh, social there's a spiritually grounded social change organization um, on the um, on the east coast um, I'm actually changing some of the identifying features so just so you know. So. All of this is, uh, some of the facts are not entirely true, but they're done for, what, the, the license of storytelling. <laughs> okay, um, and so there's this organization on the East Coast that's having trouble, it's 2002, it's right after, after 9-11, there's a great downturn in contributions to nonprofits, and there's been a change in leadership, which is always very vulnerable for small nonprofits, and basically the organization is, is in crisis. It's a spiritually grounded organization dedicated to social change, and yet they have ve- start to have conflicts uh, 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 between the staff members. The new director doesn't seem to be working so well. Conflicts between the new director, or some of the staff, the board, some of the people in the community. People have a hard time talking with each other. Of course, it's very sobering because this is a peace and social justice organization. And if they, many people think if we can't get it together you know, with 30 people <laughs> you know, in the community, how can we possibly be leaders in the work in the world? You know, which is, for anyone who's been in nonprofit social change organizations, this is an issue which periodically arises, something like that. And, and so they're stuck, people aren't talking to each other, some think the organization is in danger of collapsing their financial issues, their leadership issues, their morale issues, their interpersonal issues, what to do. Dun dun, Joanna Macy comes. <laughs> um, I, I'm dramatizing a little bit. A lot of other people are doing doing, doing work. But um, at this moment, when things are kind of frozen, um, people, Joanna Macy volunteers to lead people in some practices meditatively-based practices which um, are very helpful for unfreezing uh, frozen emotions, let's say, frozen relationships. And so about 30 people who are include board members, staff members, ex-staff members, the director, long-term supporters of the organization gather in the house of one of the board members. And uh, Joanna leads the people in about a four hour process, which really draws from her work. Some of you know again, Joanna's one of the leaders uh, in her early eighties, one of the jewels of socially engaged Buddhism. And she leads people in work, which really is a crystallization of much of the work that she's done, which is particularly a kind of inner work directed to group, organizational and social issues. Some of you know her work and I brought in probably her most recent book called Coming Back to Life, Practices to Reconnect Our Lives and the World, which is on the reading list. That's, that is one of the handouts. And sh- people gather, she takes people through a several-part process, which is characteristic of her work. Um, first part is that people are asked to say what they love about the organization or what they appreciate about the organization. This is prior to going into the hard stuff, that there is a opening to appreciation and reminding people, and people have forgotten what they love about the organization, as happens when conflicts arise, you know, and polarization arises, and maybe even some demonization arises, that the heart closes down. And so she takes them first through appreciation and people gather in the group and they're talking to the whole group and they say what they love or what they appreciate about the organization. Something shifts in the air with that. Then the, I'm feeling myself a little emotional, just this is like nine years ago, but it was uh, quite intense and that these processes are intense. And something shifts in that process. And then the second phase is actually going into the hard stuff. A principle of her work is always to go into the the vision or the beautiful areas before going into the hard stuff. Something I also learned in training with uh, Johan Galtung, some of you know his work, founder of Peace Studies, Norwegian. Uh, Actually was on Democracy Now! yesterday, I believe. You know, very uh, beautiful speaker, getting in his late 70s now. And he always said that in doing conflict work, it's very crucial sometimes to be drawn by the vision before you go into the hard stuff. Before you go into the pain, the vision can sometimes draw on. This is, for example, what happened in South Africa, where they did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which goes into the hard stuff, the pain, after they had the vision that was developed by Nelson Mandela, and they actually after they did the elections, and so they had that vision of a multiracial democracy carry them, and then they were ready to go into the pain. If they tried to go into the pain before the vision had matured enough, it wouldn't have worked. So it was something I learned is really right at the heart of Joanna's work. So we then went into the into the difficult material. There was um, a. Um, ritual done, which is called the Truth Mandala, very powerful ritual. Everyone gathered in a circle, and there was also an inner circle. In the inner circle, there were four quadrants, and each of those had an object symbolizing four emotions. In one quadrant, there was a rock symbolizing the fear or the closed heart. In another quadrant, there was uh, um, an empty bowl, symbolizing confusion or emptiness or um, not knowing. In another quadrant, there were dried leaves, symbolizing sadness or grief. And in another quadrant, there was a stick, symbolizing anger. And in the middle, there was a cushion, and people were invited one at a time to go into the circle and to stay there and see if they were drawn to one of those four quadrants, or if not, they could stay in the center. And for about an hour and a half, people went in typically for five minutes at a time, two minutes, five minutes, a few minutes, and they expressed what was on their mind. Sadness, grief, fear, confusion, other emotions, other thoughts. And after they um, came back to the larger circle, all that was said is, we hear you. And that went on for an hour and a half. A lot was said. Things were said that had never been said or that had not found a place to be said. And it was said within this context of being held by care. And something in my mind really, really shifted in that time. And there were some other phases. There was a phase of then coming out and debriefing a little bit. There's a third phase of talking with people about what had happened. And then a fourth phase of how do we practically move on from here, some practical sense of, you know, what discussions need to happen between which people to try to reconcile, you know, um, who will carry the process further within the organization. And what happened, in my view, was that the, uh, things were unfrozen, emotions were expressed. It was tremendously healing, but there was a lot of hard work still to do but it brought the organization through a difficult place and it survived and came, went on to prosper further, yeah. Excuse me, what organization was this again? I'm keeping it confidential, oh, okay. okay. It was a, a social change organization on the East Coast, but that may be fictitious. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. So, so those, are, those are some examples. Of uh, just vignettes of different expressions of socially engaged Buddhism, There are all sorts. You know, people have. It's really. Um, I mean, it goes and gets some interesting issues. You know, and um, what is socially engaged Buddhism also becomes a question. So I'll just say a little bit more, and then we'll have a little bit of discussion. Um, historically, socially engaged, what we call socially engaged Buddhism, in its current form. Is a development out of uh, particularly Asia in the 20th century, and it comes particularly out of uh, anti-colonial struggles in Sri Lanka, in Vietnam, uh, particularly. <clears throat> and the the actual phrase uh, "socially engaged Buddhism" or "engaged Buddhism" um, comes out it comes out of Vietnam. It's very, it's very interesting, actually. The, in, in Vietnam, there were um, a series of movements, and I, I know this particularly from my friendship with uh, Thich Minh Duc, who was also a student of mine for a while. He was a wonderful uh, Vietnamese teacher, and he did a, when I was uh, teaching at graduate school, he did a dissertation with me on history of engaged Buddhism in Vietnam particularly focusing on 1963 to 1965, a beautiful piece of work, it was great to know the history going back, you know, a thousand years almost and how that had been such a strong force. And he, he also would show me some text, you know, from the 1930s, 40s. So it developed in Vietnam, uh, you know, partly in the anti-colonial context, but there also were teachers from China who started using and, and who started teaching about bringing Buddhism out into the world. And he, I remember seeing, you know, because it was a French colony, uh, they, uh, they used French a lot. And I, I remember seeing some singing books where, they, where there was, a, was a, a song that said, Let's basically in French. It said, "Let's engage and go out into the world." From the 1930s, I, I, you know, he showed me those those texts, and there were a series of movements that uh, that were that started really in the um, 1950s. Um, that the first one was called. And this is the translation of the Vietnamese terms. Was called Buddhism for everybody, and was trying to bring Buddhism out into out of the monasteries. Um, as the conflict in Vietnam worsened, there was a, a second phase called Buddhism Goes Into the World, which was connected with helping people in helping refugees, building hospitals, building schools. Some of you may have seen films or read, read literature on that. And there was a third phase, which was starting after the government crackdown on the Buddhists in 1963, which was called Getting Involved. <laughs> and that's where, you know, that's where they started uh, having more active demonstrations and, and so forth. Um, started to work to uh, stop the war. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh was very involved. Now, those all had Vietnamese terms, and Thich Nhat Hanh, um, growing up in the, you know, born in 1926, Many of you probably know Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese teacher. Um, I have a number of his books on the reading list, and he's uh, quite accessible. You know, I don't know if he has plans to come to the Bay Area, but he teaches often in California, particularly southern California. There's a monastery, Deer Park, where you were just at, right? And um, a great teacher to, to try to study with, if you can. And he had grown up, I guess, he, w- he would have, you know, in the post-World War II period, he would have been 19, 20, 21. And so in that milieu, which was both, uh, against the colonial regime, but they also, also were very interested by French culture. And that was the time of, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism. And the key term in Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism was, being engaged, <laughs> and so Tikdam Han chose that term to talk about these Vietnamese terms for going out into the world. This To my best of my understanding, we have this interesting. It's, it's very similar. You know how how um, um, you know I don't know nonviolence. You know, uh, and civil disobedience is written about by Henry David Thoreau. Gandhi picks it up. And then Martin Luther King picks it up, it comes back to the US. It's kind of this irony of, um, you know, we have a term like engagement coming out of the West, picked up by Thich Nhat Hanh, that comes back to the West. You know, uh, Sartre's sense of engagement very involved with social justice. And so, anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, chose that term and said, you know, there's a, a quote, uh, uh, first, first of the quotes in the readings, he said, when I was in Vietnam, So many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and and help people, but to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And so the terminology has caught, you know, and some people sometimes add the term socially engaged or add the term socially, you know, and Thich han Hanh coined the phrase engaged. And I think it was in contrast to those who presumably were not engaged, which are those, I think, who would just be in the monasteries. That was, But then later in his life, Thich Nhat Hanh kind of questioned that and said, no, everyone is engaged. Buddhism is engaged per se. So there's some, just to let you know, there's some controversy about the language. And sometimes people see the word socially engaged and they think it means one has to be an activist only. And so I would just say that we have kind of an imperfect um, set of terms you know, and sometimes people use the word engaged Buddhism to have a broader sense. When we were working with all these training programs, it actually was an issue. What is engaged practice? And we came to have a broad sense. Sometimes we talked about social service and or action to give the broad sense that we wanted to support people who were teachers or psychologists or uh, working those working with the homeless or, or whatever. Please. I just to... Should we use the, yeah.
4: use the mic? Even the times of Gautama the Buddha, uh, his teachings were by far the most socially engaged. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. And the reason why Buddhism became a movement was because the Hindu religion at that time had become extremely segregated. Yeah. And there was a very small, less than 1% priesthood called yeah. Brahmins. And I happen to be in that community, which even today, even in in India, segregates and have like the final authority on religion. Yeah. And everybody else has to listen to them. Yeah. uh, Whether it's for any, uh, they're like the brokers to God. And uh, Buddha changed that. He even, although he started practicing alone and then with men, he eventually brought women and then he even got into, uh, he even brought prostitutes and he brought those who are completely disengaged in society. Yeah. And that today, even today, it continues. Unfortunately, there are sects which are only for men and only for certain, um, like, monastic traditions. But, like, I just came back from a 10-day with Goinka oh, yeah. in uh, North Fork. And that's run by uh, couples. It's not by monks. Every teacher there... Is a couple, including his teacher Sayagi Sayagyu Yeah. So I just wanted—I'm sure you'll talk about that.
1: Going yeah, I, mean, I was going to go a little more into that in the second section, but yeah, it's it's really it's really um, uh, very connected with how we define the terms. That that. But I'll I'll go more into that and talk. The second theme is how does. Current socially engaged Buddhism relate to tradition, and and what you're saying is very helpful in that regard.
4: In fact, the reason it went outside India was Ashoka, who was a terrible emperor, got into it, and then when he saw peace in his heart, he decided to take it out to the world, and uh, that's how it went to Bodhidharma and uh, everywhere. But it's not; it was never meant to be an evangelical religion. Yeah, it was always finding peace within and going inside out. Yes, so So that's what drew drew me into it.
1: Yes, so you're actually you're actually um, um, having me do less work. <laughs> so, um, but yes, very, very much. So um, and, uh, so that, yeah, we'll go more into the historical basis, but I just, maybe just a few other words, just to say that, just to know that the, the, the terms are, some people find them helpful, some find them not helpful. Sometimes people see the term socially engaged Buddhism say, I have to be an activist to fit that term. Sometimes people think the word socially means activist, but it's really something, I think, rather broader that we're talking, to, talking about. And it's... <clears throat> so we can really take any of those three terms, socially engaged and Buddhism, and ask what it means. We can also ask, um, what makes uh, socially engaged Buddhism Buddhist? <laughs> you know? And I- is it that... Um, Anything that someone who calls oneself a Buddhist does is Buddhist. Is that you know? So these, these questions come up. You know, you know, is uh, and we'll get more into them. Is socially engaged Buddhism a combination of people who meditate with leftist culture in the West? Is it simply that people who are you know you know influenced by uh, so-called progressive politics and they want to marry that to Buddhism in some way and what makes a particular action Buddhist per se or is that a, is that even a helpful question but just to know that that you know that was something that when I was with Buddhist peace fellowship we asked that question a lot if we're going to go you know as we did for example to demonstration against the coming war in Iraq what makes our actions particularly Buddhist you know, or uh, does going to, a, you know, so does going to a demonstration and how our actions do actually contribute? So those, I think, are helpful questions to ask. And we actually would answer them that, yes, we're actually bringing, we're not just going as people who happen to meditate, going to a demonstration, but we're actually bringing tools informed by Buddhist practice. So we would actually have um, meditations before the demonstration, people would gather. They would set intentions. They would try to be in mindfulness in those processes. Um, at, at, for certain periods, there would be sometimes sitting. I remember some very interesting moments just in having sittings while there were people giving speeches with very angry voices, and there'd be a hundred people sitting in silence. Mm. You know. So anyway, I just want to tag, though, that the, the terms... Are problematic to some extent, but but more you know the the positive aspect of this. What's most important for me is that we're really talking about a connection of inner practice and acting to help others in various ways. And I'll say more about that connection of inner and outer uh, in our next segment. So maybe that's enough to say for now. And we have a little bit of time. If there are any. Questions or further, further comments. And we can, again, we can use the, uh, use the mic. Please.
0: Um, so I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: in Can you United, put the mic up to so yeah. yeah. In the
0: United States, we have a long tradition of separation of church and state, yeah. uh, religious practice with um, political practice. Yeah, And yet many of the things that you are speaking about fall very definitely into the political realm. Yeah. And whenever we think about changing policy, yeah. that presupposes that we have a better way or a better idea about how it should be done, but that very definitely is political. So um, one thing that I noticed just on a practical level, um, like in practice communities, is that there is a, a real hesitancy to move into those realms because yeah. you don't want to step on somebody's toes. You don't want the organization to be identified with one political stance, right. So, how does this get negotiated with engaged Buddhists?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, thank you, Nancy. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a very important question. Um, quite a number of levels uh, in that question, you know. And I, um, I mean, there, there are historical questions of the meaning of the separation of church and state. There are questions about um, what is um, suitable for a practice center which has um, status as a a non-profit religious organization and is barred from engaging in partisan politics, right? So um, as well as questions of whether uh, whether there's truly a welcoming of all different social or political views in certain contexts, or whether um, you know, whether, whether a, someone who comes somewhere, let's say, on the right part of the spectrum, the right-wing part of the spectrum, would feel welcome uh, at a Buddhist center. And it's something, for example, I, we, we talk about that at Spirit Rock uh, some, you know, because um, even even though I think the, you know, if one would actually do the demographics, uh, most people who come would probably place themselves in the progressive area. It's probably like 90 or 95 percent. But still, it's, um, you know, there, I mean, there, there are different sets of issues, even separate from the question of church state and nonprofit status. There are they're just questions about. I, I think it's important to, to be um, clear about not presuming that everyone shares views, and to be very open to uh, a wide spectrum of views. I think here today included. You know, and I think you know, and it's very interesting. I mean, one of the one of the um, chapters in my book for engaged Buddhists is about using Buddhist teachings on non-attachment to views when entering into the social and political realm. Could be a big contribution. Um, and so, let me say a few more words, then I'll, so it's, um, so we, we try to, I know I personally try to be very careful and not to presume uh, that people should have a certain view. I've heard other times, sometimes those assumptions are made you know, in public settings at centers, probably happens here from time to time, and you know, and so it's, we we really try to make everyone welcome. And I think the the position of uh, non-attachment to views and really having the understanding that typically there are insights from every perspective, and also blindness from every perspective. I I truly believe that. You know, that's quite important. The church state issue is complicated. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just be brief on that. Um, I've thought about it a lot and done some scholarly writing related, related to it. And, you know, my basic intuition is that um, uh, we're, we're headed towards an understanding of what we might call uh, non-religious or non-dogmatic spirituality which actually goes beyond the issues or problems connected with the separation of church and state. That's 50 years from now, 100 years from now. You know that that the you know and and I think many of us know that Buddhism uh, doesn't fit into the category of religion so well. There's no word like religion in the Asian context, and Buddhism is probably the least dogmatic of all the world religions. So, and and is rapidly. Entering into the mainstream as a secular movement, so that's certainly one way that this may happen. Because of the kind of the clunkiness of the culture around these issues, it's really, really, it's really pretty awkward and primitive. Generally, um, you know, that may be the route that people take: is to actually say, "Here, here's a secular understanding of mindfulness and so forth," which is happening very rapidly in, you know, in psychology, education, medicine, that that may be the route that people take, you know. But it's, that has its dangers as well. <coughs> so that's, that's the short answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: Thank you, I'll try to be very brief and headed back to you. We worked with Creative Initiative and Beyond War yeah. in the area here. Creative Initiative was basically the teachings of Jesus, yeah. but without the Resurrection, without the immaculate I mean, all these other things that go on, it's simply like, what was he trying to teach? Yeah. And that was great, and that, fit be- that to our, to our minds, fits beautifully with, with what the Buddha is teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And then we decided during the Cold War and on, when the nuclear issues came up, that we needed to split from that religious concept and so we framed Beyond War, and it, were you aware of it?
1: I think I've heard, yeah.
5: Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it created a, a peace, a symbol beyond war, a war that we gave to nations across the country. We have a – anyway, it was quite a program. Yeah. And then now it has – well, it's actually moved up to Oregon, the headquarters, and so it's still moving on. But this fits a lot of, of what you're saying, that same dilemma. Yeah. I'm going to stop. yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think we may, you know, I'll just maybe say one or two more things. What I found in doing the work that was more interfaith work across traditions in the socially engaged spirituality program and also writing on that and also meeting with people and getting, you know, having kind of a wider network of people across traditions is that uh, we're at a time where the traditions can draw upon the resources of uh, each other's traditions very much. I think that's happening, you know, and... Buddhism doesn't have a lot of you know, uh, social analysis like we get from some other traditions. doesn't have well-developed notions of social justice, but does have these uh, tremendous resources for understanding consciousness, the mind, uh, how suffering occurs, and so forth. And um, I tend to think that, again, 50 or 100 years from now, there'll be an understanding, maybe sooner, Things are quickening, <laughs> but there'll be an understanding that draws from different traditions. And when we, when we did, for example, the socially engaged spirituality program, which we did over about eight or nine years, we, uh, said, we we looked at different traditions, but we said we have three foundations for this program. We have first, and it's interesting because we, we referred to Asian traditions, to Western traditions, and to indigenous traditions. Those were the three reference points. We said we have as a foundation the contemplative traditions, particularly as developed from Asian traditions, and particularly used Buddhist, but we could have used Hindu or Confucian and so forth. So we we have one foundation as contemplative practice. A second are the social justice traditions of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the third foundations are the emphasis on e- we could, we were saying on ecology and community that we get from indigenous traditions. And We said those are our three core foundations. And my sense is that, um, I mean, it is happening that um, as traditions evolve, there is kind of a a marriage of all those components, you know, and they may be developed outside of traditions or they may be developed inside. You know, a lot of the a lot of the work of socially engaged Buddhism is working with concepts of social justice, is working with ecological issues, is interested in community. Yeah. the last last two, and then we'll go into walking meditation. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Um, I you probably will um, uh, address this later on, but I thought I'll just make sure that you um, bear this in mind. Um, and this is to respond to the, I guess you would call it, the, the left wing critique of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, because uh, since we're talking and using language and concepts, um, the, the the vocabulary of Buddhism, as you yourself mentioned, is as well, it's basically individualistic. It's individual salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are very few social categories in, in, in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, one of my teachers said, I don't do socially engaged Buddhism. My primary focus is on is on the elimination of dukkha, of mm-hmm. suffering. Yeah. So, And that's, in some ways, in keeping with the stereotype. The, yeah. And maybe that's not a stereotype. It is the, 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 the dominant reality. Um, yeah. And so, in the history of Buddhism, one could say that um, Buddhist communities have been complicit uh, in um, tolerating, uh, maybe even supporting, you know, social systems that are oppressive and exploitative. Yeah. Um, One apparently egregious example is, I think, the situation in Tibet, you know, when you know Tibetan monasteries and the monks. I mean, these people obviously don't work. How do they get fed? And apparently, these monasteries own large tracts of land that were worked by serf labor yeah. that were forced to cough up. You know, maybe fifty percent of what they produce to support the monks. Yeah. So while the monks were all trying to reduce suffering, these serfs were suffering caused by the monks being. Not engaged in productive labor. So, anyway, I think I made my point. So, yeah. I just hope that you will, and I'm sure you will address this uh, yeah. down the road. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. And your, your name? Uh, my name is
6: Kian. And I'm originally from Asia. Kian? Kian,
1: yeah. Kian? Yeah. Kian, it's K. K, K, Kian. Yeah, thank you, Kian. Um, There's a powerful, one of the quotes that I have on the list of readings. This is uh, from Gary Snyder, 1961. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors. Considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Consequently, the major concern of Buddhist philosophy is epistemology, that's the way we know, and psychology with no attention paid to historical or sociological problems. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. Uh, And... What's interesting, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, what constitutes a tradition. Part of um, what constitutes a tradition is continually asking the question, are we realizing our deeper intentions or the deeper values of the tradition? And um, to me, part of what socially engaged Buddhism is doing is asking the question, when we talk about ending suffering, is there a broader understanding of what suffering means? You know, uh, very much like you can look in other traditions, the, um, the rise of uh, different understandings of Christianity, like in Latin America, people looking around and seeing poverty and seeing the complicity of the Catholic Church with the ruling oligarchies and they come up with liberation theology. And they come up with a very different interpretation of what the essence is. And I say, this is not consonant with the deeper message of Jesus. And I think that kind of dialogue helps keep traditions alive. It's really asking, is this really appropriate for what we see? You know, And, and so I think the... You know, many of you know that the Dalai Lama actually would be very sympathetic to what you said and has made, himself, made criticisms of Tibetan complicity with with injustice in the past. You know, so that's... um, We'll come come back later to the question of whether there are... Where there are social categories. I think I'll do that in the next segment. I think that's a very important uh, question. I think for the most part... The, uh, there are social categories, but they're, they're limited. You know? And so we'll come back to that. Maybe last last comment before we go into walking.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to mention, I read a research report that a large percentage of American lawyers and judges are now taking on the secular version of mindfulness. Yeah. They're really talking about mindfulness of the breath, which is Anapanasati. And uh, so without using the jargon from Buddhist practices, they're actually practicing, which is really valuable. Yeah. and they say that uh, it changes their brain. It brings them to more just when they're dealing with cases. They are not. So they're supposed yeah. to be impartial. So it's changing the way they see people, whether it's to do with race and poverty and all that. How do you be impartial? How do you have sa- samatha? So it's really bringing Buddhist principles and practices into their into the lives mm-hmm. of. As many as twenty five to thirty percent of lawyers and judges in the United mm-hmm. States alone.
1: It's very it's very interesting. The what's... same
4: thing with the CEOs of companies, Steve Jobs as well as Larry Ellison yeah. claim that they do mindfulness practice regularly. Yeah. So to me that's enough. They don't have to claim to be Buddhist per se.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting processes going on. We have uh, mindfulness going you know going into so many places, you know, there. There have been um, 15,000 elementary school students in the Bay Area, primarily in Oakland and San Francisco, who have been enrolled in mindfulness in the school programs. 15,000. I don't think it would happen in Kansas quite like that, but hope that is that right? Speech. Anyway, but I think that's. I could. It was the. Anyway, it was the humor that was questionable, but the 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 fact was I think probably accurate. It'd be be more problematic, but that's happening. We have. Yeah, we have uh, retreats for lawyers at Spirit Rock. We have, um, some of you may know, Charlie Halpern teaches classes on mindfulness at the um, uh, law school at Berkeley. You know, it's taught at um, University of San Francisco by uh, Rhonda McGee. Some of you may know her. And, um, you know, we have it going into medicine, into psychology. I could tell some funny stories about how it's used in psychology. And, you know, we have, um, you know, it goes into professional sports. Um, Phil Jackson with the Chicago Bulls and Los Angeles Lakers brought in meditation teacher George Mumford, taught, you know, Michael Jordan is sitting there meditating, you know, and the best athlete in his sport in the history of the world, meditating. So things are things are shifting. Now, we'll just note that those are happening. I personally think that it's, The secular, the secularization of Buddhism has advantages. It also has some problems. And I'll just flag one. We can come back to it. It's often hard to bring in some of the ethical dimensions. And so when meditation gets turned into a technique for having peace of mind, sometimes dimensions are lost. You know, so that seems to be happening almost inevitably in part because of the Church-state issue, but I think we should be aware that it's a it has a has some problematic aspects. You know, it's very similar, you know. Uh, anyway, I, there are a lot of historical parallels to, to to that. Okay, so let's do let's do about um, 15 minutes walking, and this will also be a time to to use the bathrooms. We'll ring a bell in about 10 minutes. Well, about about 15 minutes walking meditation. If anyone needs instruction in walking. uh, So we'll be going into silence. This is what we found quite useful in all the programs that we've done. The movement from talking to silence. So things can settle. You can get a sense of deeper intention. So about 15 minutes walking. We'll ring a bell in about 10 minutes. We'll come back about 11.30. So maybe a bell about 11.25 and then we'll go into our second segment starting with sitting meditation. If for any reason you feel like doing more sitting in here, being, being quiet, that's fine. And I'll also, I think I will also, for anyone who wants to talk one-on-one with me, I will stay up here during the walking periods and you could say hello or talk about an issue. I'll, I'll be doing that during all the walking periods today and probably some during lunch, just to have some personal one-on-one time. Okay, thanks. Thanks.